The message you are listening to was recorded by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, for the 2016th January Leaders Retreat with Stephen Lutz, who ministers at Penn State, and Eric Lonigan. More information about Campus Outreach Minneapolis can be found at cominneapolis.org. All right. Welcome, guys. Um... It's good to hear some of the uh, things that were stirred up from last night through Stephen Lutz. I uh, I was really encouraged by what he had to share last night, and uh, I uh, am excited to talk about some of these things this morning, kind of double-clicking on, particularly as Reed had mentioned. You guys hear me all right? We're good? Uh, the what What... God or Jesus is doing in you, he will do through you. So uh, if you kind of want some direction or a, a little bit of a map of what I'm thinking about for this morning, the f- this first session is going to be sort of like an internal um, look at ourselves. I-, I think all of this is going to be linked toward evangelism, discipleship, the whole deal giving our lives away to others. But the second session is going to be much more practical. So I'm hoping to do some like heart, heart diagnostics during this time. And then during our second time, I hope to give you guys some more practical information, uh, practical ways to, to seek to share the gospel with others, seek to initiate conversation um, in, in and through relationships. And I, uh, I, I've done a lot of talks recently <clears throat> on evangelism. I did one at the seminar at, at conference. I spoke at uh, a retreat this past weekend that uh, the church, excuse me, I'm a part of. Um, it's always dangerous to eat right before you talk. <laughs> um, just going to leave it at that. So anyway, I spoke at a retreat last weekend and uh, I spoke on evangelism there, and then I shared some things with our campus. So I think there's a smattering of things that a lot of you have potentially heard from me recently. And I like to keep things fresh. I like to keep things uh, new for, for those of you that are here. So there might be some overlap with things that you have heard. But hopefully, because it's the gospel, uh, you're going to be encouraged and refreshed by, by what, what I have to share. So... Uh, Here's, here's the first question. I want to open up our time. So like I said, this is going to be much more on the e- internal side. The question I have this morning for you as, you as you sit there is, how is Jesus saving you today? How is Jesus saving you right now? How is Jesus saving you today? How aware of those things are you? And, and if you want to get a little bit narrow into our map here for this specific time. I just want to talk about this in two ways. Um, these might not be the best descriptives of, of the direction we're going, but I thought this worked fairly well, and hopefully it's, it's helpful for you. I want to talk about pursuing Jesus in a sort of passive way. <laughs> that might sound like an oxymoron, but hopefully I'll explain that. And I want to talk about pursuing him in an active way. So passively and actively, 
But I want to start out more passively, and the question, how is Jesus saving you right now, I think is of critical importance because it sometimes, and I, like, I loved what Steve said. I think he's exactly right. What God is doing in you, he will do through you. That's exactly true. But we need to put some feet on that. We need to be able to understand that and not, have it not just be some sort of platitude or you know pithy thing we quote you know, just to sound real cool and Christian among your friends. You know, what God's doing in you, he will do through you. And then you, you use lingo like that sometimes, and it's like, yeah, that's amazing. Well, what does that mean? Oh, I have no idea, but it was cool. I heard it in the talk, and I'm using it now. Um, I want to be able to understand what does that mean in your life? Because here's, <clears throat> I, I alluded to this last night, but by way of remembrance, salvation does happen once, but it is also an ongoing thing. You see this throughout the New Testament. Uh, it talks about being saved, and being saved means being further conformed into the image of Christ. So there is a, an instance that happens in a believer's life when they trust in Jesus, that, that they enter into a relationship with God. They are reconciled to God, and there's a status that you're declared righteous, justified, and you're saved you are in his hand, and no one will snatch you out of his hand. It's impossible to be snatched out of the Father's hand. But being saved is an ongoing process. And a lot of times when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about our relationship with God, we talk about it in a way that's like four years old, five years old, set a prayer. Or even perhaps you're, you're a newer Christian in here, and you talk about what happened a year ago. But the gospel is so real and so alive I got really emotional over on the side here just listening to these songs and I, it was just landing on me of we will feast in heaven and how undeserved I am of that. And, and, and that means every single day I can appropriate that message to myself. And the better I am at doing that, the more winsome, the more uh, compelling, the more eager evangelist I will be with other people if God's grace is that profound to me now it's going to be so much more compelling for me to share him with other people and it won't be just that I got to get Jesus off my chest because it's some burden that I got to do but it because because he's beautiful and we're going to get there eventually but don't you want that for you that you understand right now how he's saving you now so, I'll get on the ground right away with this. Um, I presently feel like one of the ways in which this is happening for me is I'm growing and continuing to grow in my EQ, emotional intelligence. Uh, I told our staff just the other day, so my wife was on a retreat she went down to South Carolina, and they had some training that they did. Uh, a lady named Wendy did this training, and she has got some degree in counseling, or at least is in pursuit of that. I can't remember if she's gotten it or not. But she was helping them with some training and helping them grow an emotional awareness. And one of the exercises that they did was to grow an emotional awareness. You ask yourself these questions, these four questions, every single day. I know guys in here are starting to freak out a little emotional intelligence. What are you talking about, man? Like, 
I just want to grow in Jesus. I don't want emotion involved in this, but that's where we're going. So uh, I wake up now, having heard this from Holly, who heard it from Wendy, starting to try and answer these questions. What am I mad about? What am I sad about? What am I afraid of? And what am I thankful for? What am I mad about? What am I sad about? What am I afraid of? And what am I thankful for? You guys can write these down. That's fine. Just, I'm not, feel free to write it down. But I I really want you to listen and just let some things land on you for a second here. Now, what's interesting, what you're supposed to do with these questions is just answer them. Not justify, not explain to God or maybe to others what's going on with that emotion, but just answer the emotion. What are you mad about? What else? What else? What else? What are you sad about? What else? What else? What else? And so on. And I cannot believe that it's not but 15, 20 minutes into the day in my groggy self, I can be mad about so many different things. I can be sad about so many different things. Um, and, and it's not always like I have answers to all sing, every single one of those questions, but it is so amazing when you start to answer those questions and you just, I feel like, I'm trying to think of a uh, modest way of saying this, <laughs> feel exposed, completely exposed, but completely embraced because when I answer what I'm mad about, I know that he loves me still. He loves me still. When you read the Psalms, this is how they talk. If you've ever read the Psalms and you're like, I, I can't get inside of that. Knowing the steadfast love of the Lord better than life. This, like, this evocative language that is so profound and so intense. I feel so removed from that. Start to answer these questions and you will be like the psalmist. I was reading last night about David writing, talking about how he constantly thinks about the goodness of the Lord. Now, I know that David, that's not exactly true. Because when you read Psalm 51 and you know David's story, David gets called out by Nathan, the prophet, for having Bathsheba sleeping with her, someone who is not his wife, and then killing her husband to cover it up. I I doubt very much, while that was all going on, that he was thinking of the goodness and kindness and steadfast love of the Lord. But when you are experiencing God in that way, in such a profound way, that's how you talk to him. That's how you enter into that. You just come honestly before him. And so I'm in the process of learning those things and getting in touch with my emotions in such a way. That's how Jesus is saving me right now. And, and it's so good to talk about that with other people. It makes it so real. So, so again, the question for you is, how is he saving you right now? Fight, fight to, to try and answer that question. Here's, we're going to get into that a little bit more. Um, we're going to look at Acts 4, uh, really, the, what, what I have is, I want to do a brief overview of 1 through 37, but for the sake of time, we're not going to read all of that. I'm going to read 32 through 37 and, and just make some more observations about pa- passively pursuing Jesus and actively. 
Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, I don't know about you, but I am jealous of this kind of community. They were of one heart and soul. They had everything in common. They had incredible unity and deep, selfless, sacrificial living. Right? They sold their land to any that had need. It was, in a sense, socialism but it wasn't institutionally put into place. I'm not going to get into politics here, but they just they, they knew that everything that they had was not theirs, and they freely gave it as any had need. Does anybody want community like that? I want community like that. That's incredible. That's incredible community that they had. Um, so my question is, how did you get that kind of depth and commitment to each other that kind of unity to each other to each other and that kind of selfless sacrificial living with each other is it pursued as an end in itself do you just sort of concentrate in that arena and you focus really hard on community and it just kind of comes up it, it you work really hard at community just as an end in and of itself i don't think that's the answer because i think and and uh steve alluded to this yesterday, that sometimes we pit community and mission at odds, right? Like, it's like we're getting along too well, so we need to go get dispersed. Uh, or, you know, we're, we're so much on mission that we're, we don't even know each other, and we're just kind of spread out. And I think that happens a lot of times in the Christian community. But I think when Jesus is alive and at work in the ways that I was describing earlier, in each individual, that mission and community are, are just not at odds at all, but they fuel each other. They, they just, they fuel each other and they promote depth and they promote scattering at the same time. So um, let's look at what encouraged it in Acts. If you look at verse 33, he says, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. So that's what I want to do. This would be like the passive way of remembering what Jesus has done. He has resurrected and the work that he has finished and accomplished, that's my sort of category for passive pursuit of Jesus. What I was doing at the beginning of this, that's the passive pursuit to come just completely honestly before the Lord each and every day, confessing, how you feel. And if how you feel is sinful, that's how you feel. You can't change that. But his grace abounds, right? His grace increases. You guys familiar with the, the Pac-Man diagram? You guys know what I'm talking about? So that if, if you were to draw this out, I'll save this for 
uh, the, the whole whiteboard thing for, for the next talk because we're going to get more practical there. But the point of your conversion, the cross is, uh, y- you come to some understanding of your wretchedness and God's grace and love towards you. But over time, what happens is not that you need the cross more, but that you not that you need the cross less, but that you need it more. Because what you get, become more and more aware of is how infinitely holy and amazing God is, and how sinful you are. But that the cross grows bigger to bridge that gap. That's what happens throughout the Christian life. That's the Pac-Man diagram. Okay, and that is the sort of. I think that there's a passive way that that happens in an active way. And the passive way is remembering in, your, in the midst of your sinfulness, he loves you still. And I think there's an active way. And in, in this particular context, okay, for those of you who are familiar with the, with the context, what's happening in Acts? What is one of the main themes of Acts that's happening to Christians? Persecution. Profound persecution is happening. And I think that's a major contributor to why their community is as tight as it is. So here's a provocative question. Should Christians intentionally pursue suffering? Hmm? Are you provoked? (laughs) Should Christians intentionally pursue suffering? Let me let me add weight to this. Not only did persecution increase boldness within the Christians, but it promoted deep community. And there are these verses, Philippians one. This is all throughout the all throughout the New Testament. Okay, there there are a lot of passages. We're just going to look at two. Philippians one twenty nine thirty. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him but also suffer. For his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. It's granted to you that you should suffer. It's it's a given. God gave that to you as a Christian, that you should suffer. Now, if that's not super convincing, let's push the envelope a little further. Romans eight sixteen through 17 The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Provided that we suffer. Now that is really hard to deal with. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about these glorious truths in Romans 8, that we're children of God. We're recipients of grace and mercy and all the privileges that are ours through Jesus Christ. Everything that has been given to the Son is given to us by our union with Him. And then he says, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So the question, should Christians intentionally pursue suffering? Now, let me, let me just say this real briefly. I don't want to get too far down a rabbit trail here. I don't think that you can lose your salvation. I think Scripture is abundantly clear. The t- 
technical way of saying it would be if someone were to walk away from the faith because of suffering, it would thus prove they never believed in the first place. It would prove that the soil on which the seed fell was never good soil. Okay? That's all I'm going to say about that. If you have questions about that, you can talk to me. The, the real thing, reason I bring this up is for this. We shouldn't pursue suffering. All right? We're not some weird masochistic, you know, <laughs> I see all your heads right. No, we shouldn't. Woo! He said no. Okay, I can stay here and listen to the next one. Um, no, we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't pursue suffering, but we should love people as we share the gospel with them and expect suffering. We should intentionally love people as best we can. And in the midst of intentionally loving people, sacrificially, you will suffer. You will. Genuine faith will suffer that way. It's just clear throughout the New Testament. You're going to suffer if you are going to try and share Jesus and love on people in a sincere way. Acts 4, 18 through 20, so getting some greater context. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Who do they call? Peter and John. Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. The more beautiful Jesus is to you, the more you will want to share him with others. The more beautiful that Jesus is, and and again, this is all fitting underneath the category of passive pursuit of Jesus. Understanding how sinful I am, yet how incredibly loved I am, despite that sinfulness, I'm calling passive pursuit of him. And that's why Peter and John couldn't shut their mouths. I can't help but talk about this. You can't tell me to stop. It's too good. The news is too good. I have seen Peter. Look at Peter's life. He denied Jesus. And Jesus loved him still. He denied him three times. He's not an all-star. He, he, he doesn't set this bar that it's like, oh man, I, he denied him three times. The living God, incarnate. And Jesus loved him still. And Peter was aware of that. And that made Jesus beautiful. And he said, I can't help but talk about this. You guys know this principle. If you've seen any movie that you like, you've brought it up with people. No matter how extroverted or introverted you are, you had to talk about it. Is that how Jesus is to you? If he's not, you don't understand your sinfulness in, in spite of his love. That's what makes him beautiful. This is how Jonathan Edwards says it in his religious affections. i got to tip my hat to Tim Keller here. I started reading religious affections. I started reading it. Um, this is what he says. People with a new heart love and obey God because of how attractive he is. They love him aesthetically. Okay? People who obey God obey him because of how attractive he is. He's beautiful. 
Keller says it this way. How, how many people are either music majors or you know an instrument pretty well through and through? Now, when you started playing that instrument, were there times when, it, when you started to play it that it was, oh, I don't know, mom and dad saying, you got to practice? Yeah? How many of you now, and maybe it hasn't happened yet, how many of you now listen to some of that music or play that instrument simply because you love it and it's beautiful? <laughs> Thank you for raising your hand again. Shows you're paying attention. So Keller says it this way. When, when he was younger, he had to take courses on Mozart, right? He had to listen to Mozart, but at that time when he was listening to him, there was always this sort of domino effect. Well, I got to listen to this because it will enhance my career. It'll help me make money. It'll make me sh sharper minded. Um, and so he was, in a sense, forced to listen to Mozart. And it was, in a sense, useful to him. But now he listens to Mozart because it's beautiful. He simply enjoys the beauty of the music. He appreciates what's coming forth in the sound. It's satisfying in and of itself. And so it is with Jesus. If you are understanding how to pursue him passively, you'll just sit back and look at how amazing he is, that he loves you still. And, and maybe, maybe one way to put this would be, the passive song that we read was the second song, and the active song that we read, an active pursuit of Jesus, was the first. Jesus, I, my cross, have taken. And, and I want to transition. Uh, well, well, I got one more illustration before I do that. Let me just say this. There, there's a movie that uh, was released. I think it's an Asian foreign film. I, I honestly don't know the, the title of it. And uh, it sounds kind of provocative, but hey, that's what we're, we're doing here, right? To help keep you guys glued in. We're being provocative. Um, <laughs> the movie is about a man. <laughs> I don't know. There's a strange stream of consciousness that just came out there. There's, there's this, this movie is about a man who falls in love with a prostitute. It's not Pretty Woman, okay? Like I said, it's an Asian foreign film. And you guys are like, Pretty Woman? Okay, that was Julia Roberts, guys. Richard Gere, but you're young. So um, maybe some of you know it. I don't mean to insult you, but whatever. Uh, this man falls in love with a prostitute, and he is poor, and she is poor. She's stuck in this job. It feels like sh that's all she can do. And uh, he decides that he really wants to pursue her, but he can't afford her. He can't afford a night with her, okay? Um, I know, it sounds scandalous. Um, it is. So he says, I, I am going to, he, he's a, a, a bicyclist, I think, a cyclist. So he decides, I'm going to ride in some race, and with the prize money that he gets from this race, he's going to buy a night with this woman, okay? And he does it. He wins, and he decides there's this swanky hotel that she's always outside of, and that's where the men take her. They go inside this hotel, but he could never afford a night in this hotel, and therefore he could never afford a night with her. So he decides that that's what he's going to do. He purchases a hotel room 
and he purchases a night with her. Now, she knows that he is interested in her, but she's, you know, like, this is just a job, whatever. I'm not going to, I'm just going to comply. So I haven't seen the movie. This is all by way of what I've, I've heard, but the illustration works. So you, you, they, the movie pans to her being in this room, and there's um, flowers, I think, on the bed or something like that. And as a viewer, you're expecting some sort of crazy love scene to happen. But he never shows up. And she gets to spend a night inside of this hotel room by herself. She had always asked, actually, if she could, she said, if there's one thing I could do, I just wish I could stay in there apart from this job and just be there. And that's what he gives her. He gives her a night by herself. He gives her a night off. And guess what? She's never able to return to prostitution anymore. And there's something that the director understands about grace. There's something that the director understands about love. And this is a display. This is an illustration of God's love toward us. That once she gets a taste of that, knowing what she deserves... But what she's been given, she can't go back to it. And that's the case with God's love. So I I encourage you to understand how God is saving you now. Because it's like that. You can't go back. Why would you want to go back? It's compelling love. Okay? So that's all by way of passive. At the same time, Working through the cost of following Jesus helps him become more beautiful to us. This would be a technical term, mortification, to put sin to death. Philippians 3, 7 and 8 puts it this way. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So, On the one hand, you have Paul looking at Jesus and he's saying, he's so beautiful. I can't help but follow him. I can't believe what he's done for me. It's unbelievable how beautiful Jesus is that he would save a Pharisee who put Christians to death. That he, a terrorist, that he would intervene in my life in that way. That makes Jesus beautiful. And he says, I have, for his sake, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Now, ultimately, of course, Jesus purchased Paul. But in working out his salvation, I think, according to this text, there's a real sense in which Paul looks at what is gain in his life and he says, I count it as loss. There's an activity going on here. And he says, he goes further to say, I've suffered the loss. There's pain going on. I'm going to give this up because it gets in the way of knowing Jesus. It just gets in the way. It, it's preventing me from seeing him as beautiful as he is. So this is more active. There's an active way as well. D.A. Carson In his book, Basics for Believers, I I have two quotes from D.A. Carson here, and then we're going to wrap this up. He talks about the cost of following Jesus. He talks about this coming, Basics for Believers is a commentary on Philippians. And he talks about a guy who 
grew up in the church, was doted on by his family and his surrounding church body, ended up going overseas in medical missions, gave his life away uh, overseas for three or four years, was married, had kids, comes back at early 30s, and basically decides he's not in love with his wife anymore, and he leaves her for another woman, and it's a scandal. Now, why in the world would that happen? Why, why would a man do that? And this is, this is what Carson says, but in some instances at least, I suspect that there's very little evidence that the young man or woman, as the case may be, in question ever made a practice of making hard moral decisions that cost him anything. Doubtless his Christian family and home praised him every step of his sterling pilgrimage. He made the right decisions, but they were assuring him how wonderful he was all along the way. How is it with you? Has Christ ever cost you anything? Some of you are so moral. You're squeaky clean. You get good grades. Has Jesus ever cost you anything? He's not going to be all that beautiful to, to him. You wonder why you don't talk about him on the campus. What? If there's no cost, he's not beautiful. You've got your life put together. I, sometimes we have to count the cost. We have to look at what are we holding on to that gets in the way from seeing how beautiful he actually is. Here's another thing that Carson says in How Long, O Lord?, it's a book on suffering. He says, I look at my children and I wish for them enough opposition to make them strong, enough insults to make them choose, enough hard decisions to make them see that following Jesus brings with it a cost, a cost eminently worth it, but still a cost. A church that is merely comfortable, that never evangelizes, never encourages its people to stand on the front line, will never be strong never be grateful, never be able to sort out profoundly Christian priorities. I mean, you guys, you guys get where this is going. Thank you for keeping that. <laughs> it's amazing to me that despite the experience of suffering that they did in the book of Acts, you never see them ask God to take their suffering away. What do they ask for? Boldness. They ask for boldness in the midst of suffering. Acts 4.29, I don't know if I have, I don't think I have that one up there. It's okay. And now, Lord, look upon their hearts and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Do you know what boldness is? Sometimes I think boldness, I have this certain assumption about what it looks like, that it looks like some sort of professional Christian, some guy who's just really loud and obnoxious and he's going to say whatever he wants to say in any context against whoever. And that's what it means to be bold, like some sort of caricature of an NFL coach or something. I don't know. That's what I have in mind about boldness. But it's really not at all the case. In fact, you know what the definition is? To assume resolution to do a thing. To make up the mind. That's boldness. Boldness in the context of evangelism is always linked with the expectation of conflict or opposition. 
But look at Paul's boldness here in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And now get this. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. You ever been like that? You're shaking so much, you're trying to share something, and you know that someone's seeing the tremor in your hand. Maybe you're on the beach in South Carolina. Maybe it's just on campus. Maybe it's with a friend that you've known for a really long time, and you just haven't gone there yet. But you shared it anyway? That's boldness. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. I don't even know what I said, but it, it, it got out there, and we're still friends. I can't believe it. Like, I just thought I totally ruined it. I, I didn't even sound like I was articulate in the least, but I said something. But all of that happened to demonstrate the spirit and power so that your faith might not, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's boldness. It, it doesn't look like this pompous self-confidence that I often think of it as. But it's, it's saying, okay, I'm going to count the cost here. I'm going to say, Jesus is more beautiful than my comfort level here. And I'm going to consider that and, and suffer the loss of that and move forward and share. And, and, and pop the bubble of comfort and, and niceties that we have in this relationship, but, but move forward in the midst of doing that. It's, it doesn't have to look like any duplicate of anyone in this room. It's going to look profoundly different in each of our lives. But it is moving forward and it is opening our mouths. So I've got some questions for us. Let me pray for us, and then I've got some direction for us to break up and talk about some questions. Father, I just thank you. I thank you that you saved us. You saved us despite who we are, not because of who we are. That is the definition of your love. In this is love, not that I've loved you, but that you loved me. I pray that all of us in this room would get a, a more profound sense of what work has been accomplished on our behalf. The only thing that's given us a relationship with you is Jesus Christ and his righteousness pleading on our behalf. And once we're in that relationship, I pray that you would stir within us ways in which we can suffer the loss of all things, how we can count the cost in our lives, how we can take up our cross to follow you because you are beautiful and you are worth it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach Minneapolis. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at cominneapolis.org.